If you have your Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You'll recall the last time we were together, we set forth some marvelous, beautiful scripture truths in hopes of having our hearts strangely warmed within us. We asked ourselves the most important of all questions, why did Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, come? And we answered from 1 John, the third chapter, in verse 8, stating the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. And we argued that this ages-long cosmic conflict began between two seeds, which was promised, you'll recall, in Genesis chapter 3, and especially verse 15. In which there lies, as we saw the last time, a seed of glorious gospel hope. While establishing at the same time this conflict to be fought between Jesus and Satan. And we said that this story of the ages was the underlying plot line of the whole Bible running from Genesis chapter 3 clear through Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Our hope this time together remains the same as it did the last. That our hearts would be strangely warmed within us as God the Holy Spirit explains and brings understanding of the scripture to us. Remember, we argued that that's the goal of any Bible study. That's the hope of any time we open up the word of God. It should be our heart's desire that any time we hear God's word read and proclaimed, that God would keep his promise. That through the Holy Spirit, the scriptures would be explained to our minds. That they would be driven into our hearts. And above all, as a result of that Spirit's work, as we do the work, as we talked about in Sunday school, we don't distinguish between the Spirit's role in teaching us God's truth and the work necessary laid upon us to grow in an understanding of God's work. As we dig and mine the Scriptures, our ultimate hope is that God, that we would fall in love with God more. As Wesley said, our hearts would be strangely warmed within us. That we would love him more as they're explained to us and there's understanding brought to our hearts. And that's our goal yet this morning. Again, our text for this hour comes from Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. But I want you to remember that we have established, I told you Ask me back and I'll give you part two. This is going to be ask me back and I'll give you part three someday. But our, the truths that we've established thus far to 
bring to your remembrance are these. Remember that we are opposed, we are a people opposed by a cunning, resourceful enemy that can outlive us, outwork us, and outlive us. If this be true, that this is the underlying plot line of the entirety of Scripture, this age-long cosmic conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of man, between Christ Jesus our Lord and Satan himself, if this be true, we need to understand as we seek to uh, possess a biblical worldview. Now, the last time I wasn't real clear about that. By biblical worldview, here's what I desire, here's what I hope to do. And establish in my own life as the Spirit teaches me God's truth each and every day as I grow in understanding. As the Spirit explains Scripture to me. As I dig and mine God's Word. As I grow closer to Him. I pray that I would grow even closer and closer to Him. And be able to interpret the people around me and the situations I am biblically. But most importantly, and here's where most of us get off track. Most importantly, when you ask to possess a biblical worldview, what you're asking is this. And never forget it. Lord, please allow me to understand myself through your word. We as evangelicals are good at saying we possess a biblical worldview and we interpret Everyone else around us, in every situation we're in around us, biblically, or we seek to. But when it comes to ourselves, something falls apart. And we forget that we're simple-minded sinners saved by grace just like everybody else. Right? We forget that we need to interpret our behavior and actions how we conduct ourselves, whether it be in church, at home, or in the business world, or in ministry, we have to conduct ourselves in a manner that's pleasing to Christ, understanding that we too are sinners saved by grace, doing battle against a cunning, resourceful enemy that will outlive us, outwork us, and outwit us. That's the first truth we established last time. The second truth is this, and it's simple. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> There's some good news, right? If this is the ages-long cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the, the, the uh Satan himself, the good news is this. As that plot line unfolds throughout Scripture, and we saw this the last time we were together, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Part three will conclude with the fact that this be true. Jesus has done that. Amen. But as we... Consider this morning, as we've moved through Scripture, beginning in the last, with our last time together, in Genesis chapter 3, and we worked our way through Scripture, and we saw the serpent of the garden develop into the dragon who devours many along the way in Revelation 21 and 22. We've now entered that portion in which this battle has come to its, its pinnacle. 
It's all in all. So this morning we want to take a look at Christ's earthly ministry, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, in the context of this battle, this ages-long cosmic battle. And again, our text is here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I remind you that what is being read is the very word of God. It would serve us well to pay it careful attention. If you would for me, I, if you can't, I, you don't have to, but for me, I'm going to take a liberty session. If you would for me, please stand as we read God's word together. Uh, I would greatly appreciate it. This is the word of the Lord. Before we read it, let's ask him to bless the reading of it to us. Our Father and our God, this is your word, holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible. I pray that it be our only rule of faith and practice. And as we've opened it before us, we pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would crush our hearts of stone, that we might see Christ crucified, risen, that we might hear a word of truth from you and be transformed, changed, in a blink of an eye forevermore. Forgive the one who speaks, for his sins are many. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands true forever. Amen. Please be seated. We've reached that crucial point within the plot line of our story. And we need to understand that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to its end, Jesus is marching against the powers of darkness. We need to understand that from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is marching against the powers of darkness. Jesus, the last Adam, conquered in the context of chaos, what the first Adam's sin brought into the world. Jesus, the last Adam, conquered 
what the first Adam lost. And he did it within a context of chaos. Beloved, my point is simple. Jesus comes to fight. And that's not a very popular teaching today, is it? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves, Jesus loves, Jesus loves. True. Least we forget that Jesus came to fight. To fight for those he loved, people like you and me. Amen. Never forget that Jesus came to fight. Consider for a moment this with me, our text. Jesus meets who here in our text? He meets his enemy face to face. It's the seed of the woman and the seed of man. Here it is. He meets his enemy face to face. Now here's the problem with this text. We often make the elementary mistake when reading uh, the temptation narratives. Uh, We assume that their chief purpose is to teach us about our temptations and how we should resist them. When we come to the temptation of Christ, we understand it rather elementary when we understand that Jesus was tempted like us. Jesus shows us how we should deal with our temptations, and that's kind of it. But I'm afraid we missed the overall point of the the text in its entirety when we narrow it down to that. It's true. I mean, Jesus is our example par excellence in everything we do, right? So that's almost without saying or Let's say at least he should be. So what is it really that we see here? The Lord's example, as I said, should be observed and followed without question. But the point here is not to assert that Jesus was tempted and respond like he does. Look at what the text says closely. It says, we read, Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Now, I don't think that's strong enough in its translation. What we need to understand here is that what we're told is that Jesus was drove. Jesus wasn't merely just led by his hand into the wilderness. Like we lead our children sometimes. Come on, honey, let's go and we got to go do this. I know the doctor isn't fun and you're going to get a shot today, but come on, let's go. And we coax our little one into the doctor's office. That's not what took place here. Jesus was drove into the wilderness by the Spirit. And we need to understand that and see that clearly. You see, because Jesus' temptations, they're not a series of an unfortunate events that overtake him all of a sudden. These aren't... Uh, a bunch of things that just overtook Jesus one day, uh, walking and relaxing. And, well, the Spirit told me to go into the wilderness to be tempted, so I did. And, oh, when I got there, guess what happened? No, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, understanding that what was taking place was much, much bigger than that. These were not unexpected, unfortunate events that overtook Christ. What they constitute is an epic confrontation taking place within the divine strategy of all things. What the temptation of Christ 
reveals to us is that there is this confrontation taking place, this epic confrontation taking place within the divine strategy of all things, which was promised in Genesis 3. And here it comes. Jesus meets his enemy face to face. And his enemy uh, seeks to trap him, if you will, just as he did our first parents. By seeking to have Christ himself, now put this into context in your own heart and mind. This is the word incarnate. And Satan himself is seeking to trap Jesus the same way he did Eve and Adam by twisting the truth of God. The word incarnate. And remember we said that Satan often does and will use the very best things in our lives. The very best things that God has given us to pull us into sin. And I find it really fascinating that this encounter in the midst of this promised battle, Satan poise or uses the word of God to tempt Christ himself. Now think about that. On this side, we can almost see that. But in our everyday lives, we hardly ever see it, do we? How subtle the evil one is. And just twists and tweaks a little bit of the truth. It's 98% true. The problem with this is that 2% is enough for hell, right? It's 98% true of what I'm saying. 2% probably not so much. Well, I hate to tell you the 2% pollutes dilutes and ruins your 98%. Now remember what we've sought to establish within this cosmic battle. Possessing a worldview or a biblical worldview about the world in which we live, our situations, the relationships that we hold, but most importantly in regards to ourselves. How subtle has Satan twisted the truth of God's word in your own heart and mind? Well, this isn't really that kosher, but it's not really that bad. It's somewhat good, but not everybody thinks it's good. Or here's a safe thing my mom used to say. If there's one guy amongst all of you saying it's not a good idea, go with the one guy. But far too often as we seek to interpret ourselves biblically within the midst of this cosmic battle, we forget that, don't we? We'll dump the one in a heartbeat if we can get nine to agree with us. Jesus always stood with the one, I find. He never ran with the nine. Even if the nine were his own, He reminds them. So we see here in Matthew 4 in this 
temptation, this encounter in the midst of all this, and we ask ourselves, how often do I fall prey? How often can I respond? It is written. And I'm not talking to your neighbor. Most of you are real good at that. Do you know that? Most of us are real good at quoting the Bible to other people. We're not so good at quoting it to ourselves. It's the whole adage. You point your finger at somebody, three are pointing back at you. Right? We all learned that when we were kids. The problem is we don't apply that as adults, as Christians. We look at people and we judge them and we say in in righteousness we judge them and it's biblical, but... Have you ever sat and actually judged yourself biblically? See, you have to get real honest with yourself to do that, don't you? And nobody in this room likes to do that. So don't put your hand up. I'm not going to believe you anyway. Why? Why can I say that with so much uh, sarcasm? Because I'm interpreting you biblically. And what I know about you is you're a sinner saved by grace and you do battle each and every day, each and every moment of every day against your flesh, the world, and the evil one. And I know this, he's smarter than you are. And we spend a lot of time, don't we? Nobody talks to you, man, more than you talk to yourself. Do you know that? Running conversations. We all think we're geniuses and have all the answers. No, I don't. I'm more godly and righteous than that. I don't do that. Come on. You're no different than the guy sitting to your left or right right now. He talks to himself constantly too. But here's the catch. and People from Reeve already heard this before, but it's true. It's true as I'm standing here. Nobody talks to you more than you know this. Nobody lies to you more than you do too. I hate to tell you, but it's true. How many times are you encountered with something and you insist you're right? How's the conversation go in your head then? How many times in life are you challenged by someone else? What's the conversation like between your ears as six? Six inches across your face. What's the conversation like? He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't care what you say. He's a jerk. Blah, blah, blah. I'm right. He's wrong. <coughs> Who are you talking to? Your feelings get hurt. Right? Oh, he hurt my feelings. Man, if I, if I, if I would have been a guy that left the ministry the minute his feelings were hurt I would have served about 10 minutes one of the things we see about the temptation of Christ is what Bo de Bauckham says and I love it Jesus was no sissy but see I'm getting real this morning huh it was better when this battle was outside of was between your ears. But now we brought it home. 
And we brought it home because that's where Christ come to fight. For that six inches between your ears. So we would no longer fall prey to the lies and deceptions of Christ. Now quickly, because I went long last time, my friend reminded me and he said, if I go long this time, he's hooking me and I'm never coming back. But anyway, what we see here set forth in this text and what I'm setting forth as truth here from Matthew chapter 4 is this great principle. We see here clearly the necessity of the active obedience of Christ Jesus on our behalf. Within the scheme, if you will, or within the plot line of the entirety of Scripture, if the plot line be what we've established, and I think we clearly have from Scripture, what we see here in this account, account is the necessity of the active obedience of Jesus. Now, what is the active obedience of Christ? We talk about it uh, over and over again. But before I do, let me give you one more, uh, one more illustration from Scripture about this, this time period in which we're, we're in. Remember when Jesus encountered the demonic? You remember that story in scripture? You read about it in Mark chapter 5. We're told he's roaming through the tombs like a wild animal. Nobody could subdue him. That guy, remember? And Jesus comes along and he asks him what his name is. And he replies, my name is Legion for we are many. Now, A Roman legion theoretically consisted of somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 people, men. So the man's saying, there's thousands of us. There's thousands of demons that have invaded my life. Let me ask you a question. How many demons does it take? How many demons does it take to destroy one man? One. One. So what do we have and why do we see thousands here? Why have thousands of demons invaded him? We need to understand that as we come along in our story in the plot line of scripture and we have this encounter here, we need to understand it's because Jesus was there. There's a thousand, there's thousands in this individual because Jesus was there. Why? As a result of what was promised in Genesis 3. In the midst of that encounter, we see the truth of our plot line. There's thousands of people, or thousands of demons, sorry, thousands of demons. In this man, and it only takes one to destroy a guy like you and me. And he doesn't even have to be a very good one. He can be a a rookie. He doesn't even have to be a seasoned veteran. Does he? There's thousands. I need you to understand that there's thousands in that man because Jesus was there. What does Satan want to do? Is Satan really worried about you? No. No. Satan wants to halt the work of Christ. You see, there's thousands in that guy because Jesus was there and it it would please Satan, uh, nothing would please Satan more than for to halt Jesus right there in the midst of his ministry, to stop him dead in his tracks. 
That's why there's thousands there. Won't get into demon possession. We serve in foreign countries. We see other things than you do. Uh, my own personal view on demon possession is it, it obviously is not as rampant as it was here during this time. I think Satan unleashed his minions, if you will, when Christ was present. And obviously, he is severely wounded and defeated now, right? But the evilness of men's hearts produces much demonic power, if you will. And evil does exist yet today. So you see the battle in which we're in. In our place in the story. And as I said, what we have here is the active obedience of Christ in the gospel. And we need to have a better understanding of the active obedience of Christ. Because when we usually think of the gospel, we pretty much exclusively think of the death of Christ, don't we? The the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the Lord Jesus did in the shedding of his blood upon his cross for the remission of sin. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about Christ's atonement bearing on that tree in Calvary in which he propitiates the righteous anger of God on behalf of people like you and me. And it is true and it is right. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And it's there in the cross in which we are reconciled or we've been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ and that resurrection of Jesus Christ is what vindicate and validates the work of Christ on the cross on behalf of sinners like you and me but beloved we need to go on there's more we must understand regarding the gospel and the story of Christ as he crushes the head of Satan Not only, beloved, are you saved through the death of Christ, you're also saved by the life of Christ. Him not falling into temptation in the wilderness. We often talk in terms of merely his death. But know this. We're just as much saved by the life of Christ. And him not falling into temptation. Him not failing where the first Adam failed. Now fast forward to the gospel narratives. And Lord willing, eventually this book will come out and you can read the whole story in its entirety without any little clips. There we are at the beginning of the gospel narratives and we all know how the gospel narratives end, right? What do they end with? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not until we understand that for 33 years, Jesus did what the first Adam couldn't do by living a sinless life on behalf of people like you and me. Because we can't do it. You see, not only does your sins need to be paid for, the righteousness required by a holy God needs to be applied to you. You are as saved by the life of Christ as you are by the death of Christ. And why? Also, the Father can be glorified 
as Christ Jesus destroys the work of Satan. Calvary is a beautiful picture because we have the second Adam who's not going to fall into sin as the first Adam did through a tree that was appealing, pleasing, and produced good fruit. Our Savior looks at a tree that's cursed. And out of obedience, out of, it was, you see how it's reversed? Out of obedience to the Father, he willingly goes to the cursed tree, fulfilling what was lost in the first Adam. Here's the good news in conclusion. The gardener has returned, and he's reestablishing his garden. And he's weeding it, tearing it, uh, all the weeds and the thorns and the thistles out along the way. And he's drawing a people to himself as the word of God is proclaimed. As the spirit of God moves in the hearts of men and women like you and me and breaks our heart that we might fall on our knees and repent in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. The gardener has returned to reestablish the garden. Someday we'll share part three. But for this morning, I ask you this. In order for you to truly possess a biblical worldview, you need to have a biblical view of yourself. Do you? Do you interpret yourself biblically? Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ would start with themselves. We put ourselves first all the time, but we don't when the work's hard. We don't when we have to examine ourselves. (laughs) This ages-long cosmic battle is one that exists yet today. We might have a long way to go. I don't know. Bob and I have said, if CTC has to stop, Jesus better come back. Right? No Christian should not desire to go home. Now, I don't want any phone calls later. You're morbid. You're depressed. You want to die? No. No. I want to be with Jesus. Jesus is a lot better company than I am. And I want to be with him. He's come back. And we live in this already not yet. And we're waiting for when he ultimately cast that serpent, which grew to be a dragon as he devoured people along the way into the lake of hell and fire forever. What a glorious day that'll be. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth in our lives. And as always, Lord, I pray that that which was of you might be recalled and remembered. And that which wasn't would be cast away forever. Father, thank you for your word that enables us to see.
not only the world in which we live, the relationships that we hold, but ourselves. Teach us, Lord, your truth that we might examine ourselves and that we might fall and conform more and more to your word each and every day. Warm our hearts strangely that we might love you more. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.